Hello and welcome to the Everything Is Black and White podcast. Andrew Muscafia. Hope you guys are doing well. It's time for the return of Gibbo's Corner. I'm not going to spoil what the topic is because you'll hear the topic and the introduction in a brief moment. I'm just letting you guys know it's going to come to you in two parts. Part one today and part two on Sunday morning. Hope you guys enjoy it. Myself and John Gibson taking a trip down memory lane. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Everything Is Black and White podcast. It's the return of Gibbo's Corner. Yes, John Gibson is back with me, Andrew Musgrove, to take you guys down memory lane and reveal the untold stories of Newcastle United. Not to make John feel old, but he's been covering the club since the mid-60s. And if you're in the market for the best inside tales of the Magpies, this is the podcast for you. This episode is all about the managers who nearly joined Newcastle United. And boy, have we got some big names for you. Some of these links you may have read about and others will be a total mystery. Please like, follow and share the podcast. Let's get on with the show. John, I hope you're doing well. Now, this is a topic that we've had stored away for a little while. Around about eight names, all well-respected and some among the most decorated in the game. But before we get into that list, just sum up the ideal Newcastle United manager in your eyes. Throughout the years, what has been the one kind of consistent thing the owners and chairman have all looked for in a gaffer, do you think? Well, that's a very interesting question because if you look at Mike Ashley and you look at the current owners, they were looking at very different things. Um, Mike Ashley was looking for a, a mainly for a yes man that would work under certain conditions. The current uh, owners were looking for ambition and driving forward. In the old days, we had the same problem way beyond Ashley. We had the problem of were we ambitious enough um, or did we just want somebody that would do the right thing? Uh, what the fans look for in a Newcastle United manager, I think, is, is someone with a depth of knowledge who cares passionately uh, about football, hopefully about Newcastle United themselves, although that's not important as a starting point, and um, somebody that wishes to play with style. Newcastle fans, of which I'm one and you're one, Andrew, we're just lucky to be in the jobs we're in, but we're basically fans. Um, and fans want to be entertained. <laughs> There's clubs with that history, whether you're your Spurs or whether you're Newcastle or Liverpool, we do not want defensive coaches whereby we play with backs to the wall for 90 minutes, get a draw is a good result, try to nick a win. We want to play with a smile on our face and that's in the main, I think, what good Newcastle managers, you think of Kevin Keegan, you think of Bobby Robson, you go back to Harvey, the good managers haven't been defensive managers. They've, they've been the passionate people who try to go out and win games and win things. Do you think that attacking nature of the game, is that the one constant perhaps more than anything else that the fans have wanted down the decades when it comes to Newcastle manager? Yes. Um, I, I mean, you know, when you look, we, let's be truthful, we have won nothing for an eternity. It's 1969, it, it's Joe Harvey. So you could say we've been in, on the uh, shadowy side of the street ever since. 
But we've had some wonderful moments. It hasn't all been negative since Joe's days. You, you remember the Keegan days. You remember Robson's days. You remember what's happening now with front foot. You remember, although it wasn't, <coughs> excuse me, front foot, you remember with some affection, Rafa's time under a straight jacket. To a certain extent, Chris, Chris Hewton went against everything that was to, to keep us afloat and, and to survive. But the, there's been good moments, but there hasn't been enough of them. Some of these people we are going to mention went on to become legends or were already legends. And in some ways, it's a shame that the, the majority of these didn't actually become Newcastle United managers. Yes, indeed. And as you mentioned there, some of the names we are going to talk about had already made their name in the game. They'd already won things. But when yeah. approached by Newcastle to potentially become their new manager, you know, let's be truthful, Newcastle weren't always in the best of their situations, you know, either off the field in the boardroom, battles going on there, or, you know, staring perhaps relegation or mid-table meteorotary in the, in the face. And yet it always seemed to still be a draw even to these big names who had won trophies or, or sure. gone had reputations for being the best up-and-coming manager in the game. Why do you think that is? I, I think, it, I mean, if oversimplification, but to start with, I think it's a fan base. <clears throat> I think, I always remember Kevin Keegan telling me, just after he'd agreed to become Newcastle manager, having tasted them as a player, and he said, you know, <clears throat> if you're going to be a manager... You don't, you know, you don't want to follow Ferguson at, at Manchester United, Arsenal, Wenger at Arsenal, because they won everything. You want to go to a club, the famous phrase, it's a sleeping giant, whose fans adore the club in the thousands, not in small numbers, but in huge numbers, but have won nothing. So they're going to be so, so grateful if you can shake that club into life. And you can shake a club like Newcastle United into life much easier than, say, Manchester United today. We know what's wrong with Manchester United, but go there and the shadow of Ferguson will hang over you forever because he won so many trophies. Go to Newcastle, whose fans are as passionate, more passionate, in my opinion, than Manchester United, which is famously the prawn sandwich brigade um, so let's go to a club like Newcastle who have got this fabulous fan base who have got a great history of winning things but it's in the distant past and let us revive them and every manager you know, some managers wanted to come here because they were Geordies, others wanted to come because they've got very close to being superstars but think the place to do it. There's very few places as passionate. I, I, with respect, I don't think Manchester is a city that's as passionate. The Manchester United fans have been at the Man City fans haven't got a big background. Yes, Liverpool's passionate. Yes, Glasgow's passionate. And Newcastle is a passionate, passionate city. And it's one club in one city. I think that's very important as well. To outsiders thinking... This club is set up to do something big. Um, and it is. Unfortunately, we've waited an awful long time and we're still waiting. 
I was just going to say, we certainly are. Um, let's kick start then with the first name. Laurie McMenemy, Gateshead born, went on to win the FA Cup as manager with Southampton in 1976. And then Newcastle came calling. John, just talk to us about Laurie and his yeah. uh, he, him nearly coming to Newcastle. A lot of people today won't realise how big Laurie McMenemy was. Uh, he was ginormous. He was he was big physically, and he was big in reputation. And he was uh, he was lumped together with the the Brian Cloughs, etc. of of his day because um, he's an absolute legend to this day in Southampton. He become one of my greatest pals um, because he's Gateshead born. He's an out-and-out Newcastle United supporter. And I was in, as a very young man, on the start of his career, if you like. He was one of these guys that never had a, a good, a big-time playing career, but yet become a very big-time manager. A bit like Wenger, a bit like Mourinho, who didn't have a footballing playing background, but went on to become a legend. His first... He'd only played... A, it gated um, without uh, reaching any standard there, the reserves really. Um, but when I was covering Gateshead and they were a non-league side, uh, before I went to Fleet Street and then came back to cover Newcastle United when I was a young cub, um, covering Gateshead in non-league, Laurie Mack was their coach, the first team coach uh, when we had Bobby Mitchell, the old Newcastle 50s superstar, as the manager. And on my 21st birthday party, which I held in the Egyptian cottage, which was a pub next door to the old Time Tees television studios down on the banks of the Tyne in, in Newcastle there, Laurie Mack was at my 21st um, and stayed as a good, good friend and... Um, went on to to make it through these the small time with Grimsby etc etc and then went to Southampton where he suddenly blossomed now he almost he always talked to me about his love of Newcastle United and at one stage Aloy was at Southampton and carving this terrific career uh, he said look get the word in to Newcastle. I would love to become the manager. It has always been my dream. I've got a wonderful job. I'm living in a wonderful area on the South Coast, but Geordie lands in my heart. <clears throat> I approached Lord Westwood, who was then the Newcastle chairman, and made a strong case out why, when the moment comes, Laurie Mack should be considered by Newcastle United. Unfortunately, as in everything else Newcastle did at the time, the actual approach was, couldn't have been more badly timed. Um, what happened was that uh, Gordon Lee had left Newcastle. Uh, he took to his toes um, to, to take the Everton job. Controversially, having sold Supermark and sold Hibby, who were, was the the goal scorer and the playmaker of the side, instead of three, seeing the job through, he up and left, out of the blue, went to Everton. Newcastle are suddenly searching for a manager. Um, and then, obviously, Lord Bill thought of what I'd said, it had stayed with him. Laurie Mack had a huge pedigree at 
Southampton by now and uh, he's a Geordie, which is another huge plus. So Newcastle made their approach to Laurie Mack to become manager in April of 1976. The only trouble was, and can you imagine this, they actually approached him and asked him to take over at Newcastle between the semi-final and the final of the FA Cup. I mean, Southampton, our second division club, Lowry was just taking them into the first division where they were going to be terrific. But it's between, is he going to walk out on Southampton having won the semi-final of the Cup to take a second division side to a Wembley Cup final to play Manchester United? Do you think that he's going to leave at that moment and say, oh, I'll turn my back on that to go elsewhere? Of course he wasn't. It broke Lowry's heart that the approach was actually between the semi-final and the final. Because had it been any other time, had Newcastle waited till after the final, it could have been a totally different ball game. But he knew what he was on, Lowry. I mean, if you remember, uh, Southampton in the second division beat Manchester United 1-0 at, at Wembley. Bobby Stokes scored the goal and become, I think, only the second... Um, Division 2 side to win the cup After 73, you remember Just three years earlier, Sunderland had won it um, But uh, he Had to stay Had to turn them down um, And the chance was gone Ironically, Mark Menemy Eventually did arrive at St James's Park Because Lowry's son Chris Become a Newcastle United coach On the coaching staff at St James's Park For quite a while after that But um, it wasn't a beef for Lowry. Um, he went on to become an absolute legend, as I said, at Southampton. He managed them for 604 games. Can you believe that? 604 games. They won the FA Cup 1976. They won promotion to the top flight 78. They pl played in the League Cup final 79. There were title challenges in 1982. He, he was a charismatic manager that attracted big players around him. He signed Alan Ball, he signed Kevin Keegan and he signed Peter Shilton for a little small club on the, on the South Coast. I mean, they were three of the greatest names in English football at the time. And, and they, they signed for him down there and he, he, he got Southampton at one stage to second top with Keegan in the side to second top of the division and then they fell away uh, instead of the title challenge becoming a reality. And, and funny enough, as I say, he was a pal of mine and uh, the great service he did me as a friend and was when Kevin King was coming to Newcastle United because we bought him from Southampton and from Laurie McMenemy. And I've told this story on a different podcast, I think about KK, of how the place was awash with uh, speculation that Newcastle were going to sign Kevin Keegan. They were completely in the doldrums at the time, in the second division. Signed the current England captain, no chance. In a side at Southampton, it's nearly top, but they, they knew about the get-out clause that Keegan had, one of the very first get-out clauses. We couldn't nail on whether he was coming or not. I'd put in a desperate phone call to try to get Lowry, or they only got John Mortimer, his number two, they were in Amsterdam doing a, a pre-season tour. 
and he actually got the message off his number two, Lowy, and he phoned me from Amsterdam Airport, putting coins in the box. He could hear the coins going in the box to phone me and say, Gibbo, the deal's on. I've just put KK on a British Caledonian flight to Newcastle. It gets in at so-and-so. We could run the story in the Chronicle from the first edition and go up and meet the plane coming in. And that's called friendship. And he was he was a terrific guy. He actually ended up doing Newcastle a huge favour because he went to Sunderland at the end of all the Southampton business and almost relegated them to the third division. Well, he actually did relegate them to the third division. He left just before they went down, but he relegated them. So there was a favour. And a lot of younger Newcastle fans will only remember that case and think, well, he mustn't have been that good a manager. But every manager has his Achilles heel, the club where it didn't work. And if you remember, you got Brian Clough went to Leeds and it famously didn't work. He went to uh, Sunderland, but it was far too late. He wasn't, his heart wasn't in it like it would have been if he'd come to Newcastle, his club. Um, and so it never happened. But uh, one of the fascinating small things about Laurie, you know, is that um, in those days when he was a young man, and remember he was at my 21st as uh, as a coach at Gateshead, uh, you had to do national service. National service was on in those days. And because he was a ginormous guy, I mean, he was like Dan Byrne, you know, huge, huge guy and got the build to go with it. Uh, National Service come along and he ended up in the Coldstream Gods, which is the local gods just up on the, as you well know, up on the on the borders there. Uh, and his job when he was on the Coldstream Gods is that uh, he was regularly on duty outside of Buckingham Palace in his Busby, standing as God outside Buckingham Palace. You know, the tourists all coming and having a photograph and there's this young Geordie lad standing there. And, and it was Larry McMenemy who was going to become a famous manager. And he often said, at the night time, they actually went round the back of the palace and stood on guard at the back of the palace. Um, and he said, often, the Queen would come out and to go somewhere privately for a private dinner party or whatever, and he would be saluting in his busby at the back, and she would say, Good evening, how are you? As you went past. Um, so he says, he always said he met the Queen three times in his life. He met her in a Busby at Buckingham Palace when he was in the Coldstream Guards. He met her at the Cup Final in 1976 when she presented the FA Cup when Southampton beat Manchester United. And he met her when he got the MBE. So uh, three different occasions, isn't it, from being um, in the century box to winning the FA Cup, to getting a gong off the Queen. But, um, I mean, happy days. In those days, he used to, him and Cluffy, who I'll, I'll be mentioning later, uh, him, him and Cluffy used to come up and do an awful lot of talkings with myself in the Northeast because there were huge name managers. Cluffy was winning European Cups, huge name managers, and used to come up and do things because they loved the Northeast. And one of the things that's going around on the BBC archives at the moment, and in my attention's being drawn to it regularly, is a clip where Cluffy and Big Lowry and myself in the BBC studios in Newcastle, the Pink Palace, are discussing whether the North East was a hotbed of football, which was the phrase used in the famous book was written by Arthur Appleton, called the hot, North East hotbed of football, or whether it was a myth because 
the club's won nothing. And that's still showing to these days if, if the two was. But uh, I mean, he was so well thought of at the time as not only did he turn down Newcastle United uh, because their approach come at the wrong time, he also turned down at some stage of his time with Southampton. He turned down Everton. He turned down Leeds, who were a big, big club then. And he turned down Manchester United. Um, so... And as I say, Laurie's still alive, still living in comfort on the south coast. Never left there after, because he, you go back to where you're a legend. Superman come back to Newcastle to live, didn't he? Because he's a legend up here. Laurie's living on the south coast now. And he's 87 year old, but he's uh, still around, still sprightly. Uh, and still has an awful lot to say on football if anybody wants to phone him up. Yes, I'm sure he does, John. And um, that clip you're talking about doing the round, it's well worth a watch if anyone hasn't seen it. You mentioned there uh, about the approach for Laurie McMenemy coming at the wrong time. I I'm just wondering if you could share your thoughts when you heard Newcastle had taken your advice but taken it at the wrong time. And you must have just been shaking your head thinking, what on earth are you guys doing to do it at this time in the season? Because, yeah, and you've got to remember what Laurie <coughs> went on to do. Uh, you know, he was just building his reputation then, but he won the FA Cup immediately. He won promotion. He went to the League Cup final. He got Southampton at one stage second in the uh, first division. He, he had Keegan. He had Alan Ball. He had Shilton. You know, that could have all happened at Newcastle. And I'm just thinking... Can you believe the timing? In fairness to Newcastle, they got caught out by Lee taking those toes, totally unexpected. But what they did then, they didn't appoint um, a manager when, when they got turned down by Lowy. They let Dickie Dennis, who, who was Lee's number two, uh, be manager until the end of the season. And then unbelievably, because of a player power, they they allowed the players to force them to give him the job to Dickie Dennis permanently. I think he lost 10 games on the trot at the beginning of the next season and got sacked. If they'd only just waited, if they used a caretaker anyway, Dickie Dennis, if they'd only just kept Dickie in as a caretaker and then went for, for uh, Laurie at the end of the season, having won the cup, Yes, Southampton would have off moved heaven and earth to keep him, but they might well have got him because the bottom line is he wanted to come here. And with a lot of people, the fact that they never, these people I'm going to mention, that they never come to Newcastle was an unfulfilled dream for them. Uh, and they'll always say, hey, I, you know, the one thing that was missing is I could have managed Newcastle United. I mean, it's interesting that you, you, you mentioned the record of Richard Dennis, uh, 40 games, and he lost the majority of them, lost 18. It's just, I mean, it's just an off point. But when you look at the the record uh, of games that managers took charge of in that period of time, I mean, Joe Harvey, 591 games he was in charge uh, for yeah. 1962 and 1975. And after that, you've got 74 games of Gordon Lee, 40 Richard Dennis, and then eventually a bit of longevity with Bill McGarry, um, who had about 118 games in charge. But um, interesting uh, numbers there. We're going to go on, uh, John, to the next man um, in the list who 
funny enough, it was talked about around about this time. Um, I imagine looking at the numbers, John, um, we're going to talk about Bob Moncur. Was it Bob Moncur coming in to replace Bill McGarry? Was that the idea? Yeah, the the interesting thing with Bob, I always felt that Bob was destined to be Newcastle United manager. I'm talking about when he was a player. Uh, You always felt one day this man will manage Newcastle United. Um, he was built in the image of Joe Harvey, who was hugely successful as a Newcastle United manager. As you know, the last Newcastle United manager to win any trophy, uh, won the European First Cup. He looked a bit like Joe. He was dark and, and, and swarthy, and um, he was a tough guy, defender like Joe was. And we, he was Joe's captain. And Joe believed in him and trusted him because it was almost like a replica of himself. And I always felt that Bob was a legend at the club because of 1969 winning the first cup and scoring a hat-trick in the the final. And I felt that he's going to learn the managerial game in the same way as Joe Harvey did. Joe Harvey went off from Newcastle to manage Barrow and Workington, who were football league clubs at the time, I should add. And Bob went off to manage Carlisle, where he signed um, Beardsley, Peter Beardsley, where no one else would take a, a punt on Beardsley at Walls End Boys Club. And teams like Oxford and Cambridge United were turning Beardsley down. Bob saw something in Beardsley and took Beardsley to Carlisle and started this magnificent career for Peter. And after being at Carlisle, he went up to Hearts to manage them in Edinburgh because, of course, he came from Scotland, from Perth, and uh, so he was almost like going home. And this was in late 1980. um, And as you rightly say, Bill McGarry had been sacked as Newcastle manager. And Bill, bless him, was an absolute disaster. What an awful manager he was. And um, I mean, he was so negative uh, as a guy. He was so grumpy. Um, he couldn't get anything out the players. I mean, the, the day he got the sack, he, he decided to hold an impromptu press conference to, talk, to tell the press why it was unfair that he should get the sack. And we all happened to be up at St. James's Park. So we were called in and he pointed to me at the back of the room and said, you, you, John Gibson, have got me the sack today. And I said, Bill, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. Because (laughs) if ever anybody needed the sack, it was Bill. He was an absolute unmitigated disaster. But the word had come out that Bill had got the sack. And Bob phoned me from Edinburgh. I got a phone call from Bob. He wanted to know what his chances were of getting the Newcastle United job. Uh, I immediately made contact with the Newcastle board, um, told them that Bob could well be interested. This was all off the record because, of course, he was already in a job. It was all off the record, but it was the club of his heart, as it is to this very day. Um, and he'd almost been promised it by Joe in the, in, in the old days, you know, you're destined to be, to follow my footsteps, etc., etc. I talked to the board. I got the impression that they were, they, they loved Bob. They weren't certain whether to go down the route or not to go down the route. Um, 
What did happen, I found out afterwards, that contact was made with Hearts. They, they were told by either Bob or by Hearts that compensation would have to be paid for Bob to be able to come to Newcastle. And Newcastle being Scrooges in those days, as they were for an awful lot of that time, decided against paying any sort of compensation for a manager. And so the whole thing was knocked on the head because it was going to be significant compensation. Uh, Bob, being an absolute professional, when I relayed this back to him, jumped the gun and put out a statement saying, there's a lot of speculation about my prior statement then, but a lot of speculation about my future. I would just like to re uh, reiterate that I will be staying at Hearts, etc., etc. And so we went on from there. The amazing thing is, Andrew, that having been involved in the possibility of Bob Moncler becoming the Newcastle manager, uh, Lee having gone, the next thing I hear is that I get a, a phone call from Joe Harvey. Uh, and Joe says to me, hey, Gibbo, he said, um, you know, we're looking for a job, etc., etc., etc. I'm thinking about Arthur Cox. I said, all right. Now, Arthur had been a coach to Bob Stokoe at Sunderland when Sunderland won the Cup in 73. And... Bob Stoker was a very, very close personal friend of Harvey's from the days when they were both players together at Newcastle United. Bob Stoker had always looked up to Joe Harvey and thought, he's the sort of centre-half I want to be. And in fact, Joe played in the 51-52 Cup final and Stoker played in the 55 one. And he he played golf with uh, with Joe all the time when he was Sunderland manager, etc., etc. So... Uh, Joe had gotten Arthur Cox very well from from the Stoko days, and he wanted to know whether Arthur um, would be interested in coming to Newcastle. Uh, at that stage, uh, Arthur was at Chesterfield. Um, at the time, he'd been there for manager for four years, and his background was a little bit like. Larry McManamy's uh, talking about, he had no background as a player whatsoever. He had broken a, a leg in a reserve game for Coventry that had ended his playing career almost before it started <clears throat> and he quickly got into the other side of football. He'd done his apprenticeship at Chesterfield. He was a real sergeant major type of guy. He had a, a short crew cut. He was a tough guy, etc., etc. I phoned him up. Uh, I didn't know him that well, but I knew him from his Sunderland days and said, Arthur, I'm speaking on behalf of Joe. Joe didn't want to make the phone call to Arthur direct because if Arthur wasn't interested or there was some reason why he couldn't get away from Chesterfield, it didn't want, uh, Joe didn't want it to come out. He'd made an approach from and got turned down because it looked bad on Newcastle getting turned down by the manager at Chesterfield. So they used an intermediary who was me. The word comes straight back, would I be interested by Joe? You bet I would be interested. And and so I, I relayed that word back to Joe and the, and the job was done. Um, he came up here. The Newcastle were totally in the doldrums at, at the time. They were down in the second division. Um, they 
were going nowhere and going nowhere fast and they needed to be revived. Arthur was the sort of workaholic that would do that and do it on a very limited budget. But out of the blue, out of this misery, came the idea, half put up, jumped upon by Arthur, but put up by Scottish and Newcastle Breweries guy, who was the sponsor of the club at the time, and uh, why don't we go and sign Kevin Keegan? Uh, because they happened to know that there was this uh, release clause in KK's contract. Um, Coxie jumped upon that as, a, as the answer to all his problems, <clears throat> and we ended up with him, and suddenly Newcastle were transformed from a run-of-the-mill second division side, not getting capacity gates on their uppers, to this vibrant side. When when we signed Keegan, there was clouds round, wanting season tickets round the ground the next morning. And all of a sudden, Cox built this side, which was quite phenomenal. And because Keegan become a Pied Piper, he, he, everybody followed Keegan. And people signed for Newcastle just because Keegan was here. Terry McDermott came, uh, David McCreevy came, Glenn Roder came. And Cox forged this Newcastle United side, which was based on the three strikers that they had, none of whom was a centre-forward. We talk these days about having a false number nine, uh, as if that's a new thing that football has never known in their life. Arthur Cox played at Newcastle without a number nine, with a false number nine, because his three up front were Keegan, Beardsley and Waddle. There wasn't an orthodox target man there at all. And um, he, Cox was revered as the man, and out of nothing, he built this side with Keegan that won promotion and put his back in the, in the top division. Sadly, Cox realised the lack of, of ambition in the boardroom at that particular time and decided he'd been uh, scouted by Derby County and he went to Derby County and at the end of the promotion season and Kevin Keegan had retired so everything disintegrated for Newcastle. But Coxie was a bit of a wacko, the same as Budgie, the Newcastle goalkeeper, John Burridge, was. Um, in, in totally different ways, Sergeant Major types, fitness fanatic types. And he tried to sign all Newcastle players for Derby County. Co uh, Coxie did. He tried to sign Peter Beardsley, who loved him to death. P Peter was in Everton at the time. Peter agreed to meet Arthur and told him, look, I love you, but the Derby aren't in the top division, etc., etc. I don't want to drop down a division, so I'm not going to come. And Arthur said to him immediately, well, the only place I'll be happy to see you go is back to Newcastle. And that alerted Peter, what does Arthur know? Because he did come back to Newcastle um, to sign for Keegan, who was then manager. And... Um, but he also tried to sign Budgie for Derby. And this was a meeting of minds because Budgie told us a story. He went down, Budgie went down to Derby County to, to meet Arthur. And he sat in Arthur's office for about an hour while Arthur told him why he should sign for Derby County and why he would be actually lucky to play for Derby County. Budgie 
didn't quite fancy it and said, and Arthur could sense something's wrong. He said, look, I'll go and make a cup of tea, fancy a cup of tea. You have a bit of a think and we'll conclude it when I come back. So Budgie said, yeah, great. So Arthur went out. Now, as he went out of his office, Budgie heard the key turn the door. And Arthur had locked the door from the outside when he went out to make the cup of tea. So that Budgie was, was stuck sitting in his room with the door locked. Budgie suddenly thought, I've got to get out of here because I don't want to sign. And Arthur's a maniac. I'm going to have to sign. So he managed to open the window, if, if the manager's office, climbed out the window, ran to his car, got in his car, and started driving away. Now, as he was driving away, he saw Arthur rush out to the manager's office with a big teapot in his hand, which was he'd been making the tea for Budgie. Unfortunately for Budgie, he had to go at the top of the road, round the roundabout, and come back down past the baseball ground to get back home. And as he come back down past towards the baseball ground, Arthur ran out into the centre of the road onto a, a, a bollard, waiting for him. And as he passed through the teapot at the car, because because he was escaping from Derby without signing for him. And and Budgie used to say he always sent the rest of his life. He sent um. Christmas cards to all his old managers. Considering how long Budgie was in the game, it must have cost him a fortune because he'd have about 50 cards to send. He had that many clubs. But he always sent them a, a Christmas card. And, of course, he he played at Newcastle under Coxie. And Coxie, every year, when he received the card off Budgie, tore it in half, put it in an envelope, readdressed it to Budgie and sent it back. He wouldn't accept it. He tore it in a half. So every Christmas from then on in, that happened. I mean, he was, Arthur was, he raised Newcastle from the depths of despair through Kevin Keegan, the player. And because Kevin Keegan was sold on Newcastle as a consequence of playing for Arthur, he came back and managed them. So he opened the door to everything at Newcastle. And the wonderful thing is that to this day, Arthur, who's still around in his in his 80s, as Laurie Mack is, at the end of this month, I'm doing a big gig at the Time Theatre with Waddle, Beardsley and Keegan, which are the three forwards of Arthur Cox who um, won promotion for Newcastle. It sold out at 1,100. So that's, that shows how wonderful we are about nostalgia, those Geordies. Um, and Arthur Cox is going to come up for that. And he's going to, there's a royal box in the corner and he's going to sit in the royal box just to watch his three guys on stage talking Newcastle United. And it'll be lovely to see him again because we owe him an awful lot um, because of the way he revived Newcastle United. Mm. Sliding doors moment maybe then that Bob didn't end up getting uh, the mm. job. And Arthur Cox did, and went on to you know to a certain degree. It worked. It certainly yeah. worked out for Newcastle, um, Andrew. Yes, no question about that. And that's the end of part one of this episode of Gibbo's Corner. The men who nearly became Newcastle United manager. Check back on Sunday morning for part two. Hope you guys have enjoyed the episode and enjoy the rest of your week. Mm-hmm.